Father, this evening we give you glory, honor, power and praise. Because it's you and you alone who enabled us to come here. Brought us through everything, Lord, through this day. You brought us here. We just thank you. We just praise you. We just worship you. I pray, Father, that now we are here, that we would learn to be still. There are so many issues concerning each one, concerning life. But at your feet there is rest. At your feet we hear the word, the words of life. And one word from you, O Father, can change our destiny. Even tonight, I pray, Lord, you will speak to us, you will speak to someone. A word that will change their destiny, their eternity. Speak, Father. Just release this time into thy hands. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. We've been, over the weeks, months, been looking at preparing for the coming of the Lord, whether it is like we keep repeating today, next week, next year, ten years from now, the joy, the blessed hope, Paul, the apostles talk about that blessed hope of his coming, the joy of his coming, the confidence we have when he comes. All this is not theory. In the kingdom of God, there is theory and there is practicals. Okay, There's something which we really experience. We also looked at over the weeks about the ten virgins, Five wise, five foolish. We looked up at the two men who built one on the rock, one on the sand. We also looked at the parable of the sower. Because different. The message at the core which God is trying to say is the same. But Jesus used parables. Jesus used illustrations, examples like any good teacher and he being the best. So that we would get what he is trying to tell us. In the, in the parable about the wise and the foolish builder, what separated the wise from the foolish, okay, is Matthew 7 and verse 26. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine, hears. Everybody sitting here is hearing. Okay, like keep saying. At that level, everyone sitting here, I don't know who is wise, who is foolish. Everybody looks wise. And everybody is hearing. What separates? What separates? What separated them is the fact that one said, the wise one, Jesus will say in the subsequent words, if I am right, he will say are the ones who went and, he, those who went and did it. Okay? So, it's the foolish one, but the one who did who does not do. So the emphasis is this. In every dispensation, in every generation, among the people who hear the word of God, there will be one group who not only heard, but also they do it. Okay. Now do has two sides to it. When we come further we will look at it, but we will look at one particular side which is important because we are two weeks, today is 14th, exactly two weeks into the ninth month. Shall we ask this question to ourselves? 
What did I do for God in these two weeks? What did I do for God in these two weeks? Don't tell me I came to church regularly on Sunday and even on Wednesday and I heard the message. I even have the notes. I was regular. Even during Israel's worst times, when Ezekiel is preaching about the Babylonian captivity that is coming and Ezekiel is preaching to a, a set of people, even they did it. In Ezekiel 33, 30 to 33, God is telling Ezekiel, as for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you. They're talking about you. Pastor James, do you know your people are talking about you in their homes, about your messages? Beside the walls and the doors of the house, they speak to one another. Everyone is saying to his brother, please come. Please come. Please come to GTC. Please come. Hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. They hear your words. But, but, they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed you are to them a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. It will surely come to pass. They all come. Everybody wants to hear about what is coming in the future. And they are all listening and said, man, come. Ezekiel is preaching about what is coming to Israel. Come to GTC. Pastor has been preaching for months about the last days. And Jesus' second coming. But when he comes, you will know that there was a prophet in your midst. Because you are left behind, he is taken. That's what he is saying. What do we do for God? I'm not saying about what you did not do because of God. I don't drink at all after hearing the messages. Good for you. You know, Pastor, I was a chain smoker. After I came to the church, Jesus set me free. Good for you. Now you know, Pastor, these days I don't go out anywhere on Sundays. I come to church. Good for you. Good for you. True. All this is good for you. I'm not saying any of this thing is good for God. If I don't smoke, it's good for me. What difference does it make it to God? We sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Right? What a friend. We love singing it. But Jesus said something else in John 15, 14. He said, you are my friends if you do. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. He did not say you are my friends if you believe in me. He did not say you are my friends if you read about me. He did not say you are my friend if you hear all the messages about me. He did not say you are my friend if you meditate upon the messages and the word. He says you are my friend if you do what I command you. The question is, what have you and I done lately so that we can say, Jesus is my friend? There are people, honestly, in these 2000 years of church history who have lived 
and died in the church who have never shared the gospel with anyone, never witnessed, never done anything in the name of Jesus, never done anything in the name of Jesus. All they can testify is what they did not do, which are good. Which any good Hindu or Muslim too can say, I did not drink, I did not smoke, I did not lie, I was faithful at my work, I never stole. Lot of Christians also have only a testimony of what they did not do because of God, not about what they did for God. On the last day of his ministry, last day of his ministry, after the last supper, he gave his disciples a practical lesson. He gave a practical lesson. He was giving them a lesson. He's been teaching them theory, practical, theory, practical, theory, practical, theory, practical. Theory was, this is the kingdom of God. Practical laws, I give you power, go do this in my name. And they got excited by power. Excited by power. He knew they were excited by power and they knew they will receive power after 40 days, 50 days after on Pentecost. He knows that. We can be excited by power. Now if Peter is anointed, like Jesus anointed his disciples when he was walking on earth, he also will be excited. Who doesn't want to work that work? One, Jesus is with you, you are protected. Nobody can touch you. Two, Jesus is with you, your provisions are taken care of. He says, I sent you without this. Did you lack? They said nothing. Third, you go out in Jesus' name. Every, every day is a spectacle. Demons go, dead are raised to life, and everybody is excited. Right? Now, he has taught them that much. And all that, and the last day, he changes the whole perspective of his ministry. What he did was he wrapped a towel around his waist. He washed their feet, and this was... The final lesson. He says you are You can do all those other things for the wrong reasons and yet have never served me. Because you do not serve one another. Do you know what he finally told them? Different, different things he told them. In John 13, 17, in the KJV version, it says, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And KJV will make it blessed. He said, we know so many things. Why are Christians not so happy? Honestly, look at, I mean, I look at the world, I see the people in the world are much more happier than the people in the church. Am I true? Am I right? The ones who drink, they get their kick out of it. Okay. The ones who steal, they have a blast with their money. The ones who love sports, they enjoy it with their popcorn and whatever. They're having a blast. The children of God come to the church and they hear all this and they are not happy. Why are they not happy? Because he said, the reason is that he said, you will be only happy, not by knowing these things, but doing these things. You look, go through the book of Acts, do you see anybody unhappy there? And do you see why they are happy? Because they are doing something for God always. They are always doing something for God. And Jesus said, this is the secret. He says, my friends are those who do what I command them. My friends are blessed or happy because they do those things. They have heard and seen him do. Not just we hear and forget. 
We cannot be a here and forget generation. We need to be a, a doing generation. In Luke 6 and verse 46 he said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? If I am right, that 814 times in the new covenant where he says about doing. <laughs> not one or two times about doing. There are so many things he tells us to do. There are so many things he tells us not to do. The Bible actually calls it a sin not to do the things which God asks us to do. In James chapter 4 and verse 17. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. There are a lot of things which we know we need to do. We pride over the fact which is part of it over the things which we don't do because of God. Right? We don't do because of God. But God says, that's good, that's good, very good for you. But there's the other side. There are a lot of things which God wants us to do for Him. And scripture is very clear. We as believers will be judged on that day for both. What? We did not do because of him. God says good. And what we knew we should have done and we did not do those things. Saul of Tarsus was converted on the road to Tarsus, on the road to Damascus. He encountered Jesus on that road. The first question he asked in Acts chapter 9, 5 is, Who are you, Lord? First question. He says, I am Jesus. First, we need to settle this question. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? Many of us have not settled this question yet in our hearts. He did not ask, who are you? He says, who are you, Lord? Understand the difference. Okay, there's a difference. He did not ask, who are you? If Jesus said, I am Jesus, that's it. But he's asking, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. Once this question is settled, the next question he asks in verse 6 is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Once the Lordship of Jesus Christ is settled in our minds, automatically the next question will arise, what do you want me to do? Our issue may be that we are not still settled in our hearts about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are still struggling with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't ask the second question, what do you want me to do? Jesus did not tell Saul of Tarsus, oh, Saul of Tarsus, there is nothing to do. I just love you so much. I just want you saved. That's, that's why I came to meet you. Because you see, I love you so much. I want to save you. That's all. Nothing to do. Jesus didn't say that. He said, no. Go to Damascus. It will be told to you. Right now, I cannot tell you what to do. Because there are certain things to be settled in your life. Certain things to be settled in your life. Once that has been settled in your life, I will definitely tell you what you need to do. Because there is work for everyone to do. I did not save you just to hang around doing nothing. I have saved you also to do a work or do many works. Three days later, 
His eyes are opened. He is baptized. He eats a few little food. He is strengthened. Immediately he is with the disciples. He is learning from the disciples. And verse 18 to 20 says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. When he had received food, he was strengthened. Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus, probably very clearly learning from them about this new way, about Christ, Christianity, everything. How does it tally his learning? And verse 20 says, Immediately, he went and started preaching the Christ, that Christ in the synagogue, that he is the son of God. Now, he is doing something for God. I am not saying all of you are called to preach, I am not saying that. But there is something everybody has to do. Do we do? I am not talking about your job. Okay, I'm not talking about your job. You are at your job because you can earn something there. That's the reason everyone, all those who went to work today, to work, had a job in the world who went to work today, just show me your hands. I'm not taking a picture, okay? You all went to work. But why did you go to work? Let me tell you, how many of you will go to work if your company tells tomorrow, please start coming to work from tomorrow at the same time, but from this day onwards, no salary. How many of you will go? So don't tell me you go to work for God. No. The question is, yes, you went to your company to work. You are earning your salary. But the question God will ask you is, what did you do for me there? For me there? What did you do for me there? Or, we are in the church for many years. We heard... We learned, we studied, we meditated. What did you do for me there or through the body of Christ? There are so many unmarried. All those who are unmarried, please lift your hands. Today is a day of lifting hands. At least others will know you are unmarried, okay? Lift your hands. Okay, okay. Because some of these girls are not sure. Some of these boys are not sure who is married, who is not. Okay. Let's pick Peter today, okay? Peter is Ajka Bakra, okay? Let's imagine Peter... He's finally found his girl whom he's going to marry. So he tells this girl, somebody said hallelujah, okay? Okay. So Peter tells his fiance, you see, I am not going out with any other girl anymore from today. And she says, thank you, Peter. Then she asks him, but Peter, where are you taking me? And he says, nowhere. He tells her, you know what, I promise you I won't buy any girl, anything after today. She said, that's nice. What are you buying me? And he says, nothing. How do you think she's going to feel? I am not going to serve any other God from today. God says, very good. What are you going to do for me? Oh, nothing. Right? Well, I read my Bible. Good for you. What are you going to do for me? I go to church. Good for you. What are you doing for me? See, all these things we actually do, we are doing for ourselves and it is good for us. If I ask my child, what are you doing for me? And he says, I cleaned my room. I'll say, good for you. You want to live like a pig? You want to live like a clean child? It's your choice. I clean my room. Good for you. 
Well, I ate my breakfast. Good for you. I went to school. Good for you. I studied well. Good for you. Well, what did you do for me? No answer, right? I went to work early in the morning. Good for you. I worked hard. Good for you. I was very honest. Good for you. You may get a promotion too. I came back home to my family. Good for your family. I spent time with your children, my, with my children. Good for your children. What did you do for me? That's what God told Ezekiel. You see, they love to hear you preach. They will even invite others and say, come hear him. But they forgot their purpose. They forgot their purpose. And often the majority in history in the church has forgotten their purpose. This is not a place where we gather to soothe our conscience. No, this is a place where we get, come to get refueled so that we can go and serve God all week long. All week long. By the time, I call it internship. By the time Joseph finished his internship in Potiphar's palace and prison, everyone knew he was a Hebrew and his God was different. How did they know? How did they know? By the time you finish two years in your company, will everyone know you are a spiritual Hebrew and who your God is? They will if you serve God there. Did he do his job? Yes. At his job, did he do a work for God? Yes, he did. So did Daniel. So did Daniel. Daniel also was in the secular workplace, if you want to call it. But he did an incredible job for his masters, yet he served his God through his life. And everybody knew who Daniel was and who Daniel's God was. In John 6, of course, 28 to 29, Jesus says, this is step one. They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, okay, okay, wait. So the first thing you need to do, this is the work of God that you believe in whom he sent. First work, before you can do any work of God, you have to first believe in his work. That is step one. You have to believe. You have to believe that he is Savior, he is Lord, understand, receive the Lordship of his life. That is the first work. Which itself is a very difficult work. Because the minute you accept and start growing in the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you realize I have to do a lot of things for myself. There are a lot of things I can do. There are a lot of things I cannot do. It's about Lordship. That's the first work. After that, he talks about the next work. In John chapter 9 verse 4, he actually wants us. Yeah, 9 verse 4. He says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Night is coming. The night is already here. Have you understood? Have you seen how difficult the work of God has become in this generation? Even in the most so-called Christian nations, the work of God has become so difficult. Why? Because night has come. The darkness is increasing. So God is saying, as the 
darkness increases, we should be on our toes because there is very little of the day left. And we need to be crying out, Lord, I want to do your works before complete darkness takes over. Because he says, night is coming and no one can work. No one can work. Night is coming. No one can work. Three days of absolute darkness for the disciples. Three days of absolute darkness. Jesus picked, Jesus killed. Three days, he's absent. They couldn't do one work of God. One work of God. Neither the Son, nor the Father, nor the Spirit is active with man. To tell them, do this. Nothing. Nobody's there. They're petrified. Three and a half years, they were never afraid because Jesus was with them. And he sent them. They went. Nobody could do anything to him because he watched over them. Three days of night. They could do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Third day, he arose. He came to them in the evening, breathed upon them and said, you can start working again. Then he said, but wait. I'll give you power also that you will never run like before again. But you will be able to work. We have to do the works of God. I'm not doing our works or our company's works. Everyone has to do the works of God. Because night is here. What did you have me do? Ask Saul. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do? Jesus said, you are my friends. If you do whatsoever I have commanded you. We've been, we've been studying about the Lord's coming, about being ready, about being watchful, about being prayerful. But he also says in the same parables about when he comes, we are found doing. Blessed is the servant. When the master comes, is found doing what he was told to do. He says, he himself will get in, put an apron and start serving the one who was found doing. Right? In the final parable about his coming, final parable, okay? When he talks about his second coming, which is all of Matthew 24, and he goes through the signs, everything, then he talks about the unfaithful servant, then he talks about the wise and the foolish virgins, then he talks about the servants who are working. And then when finally he ends it up, he ends it up in Matthew 25, where there is a separation of the sheep and the goats. What separated these two groups? Ultimately, what separated? In verses 35, Matthew 25, 35 to 40, he says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothed you? What did he say? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Did you see the list? Final division. The question is, when was the last time you fed somebody who was not your friend? When was the last time you bought a chai for somebody? When was the last time you visited somebody who was sick? 
When is the last time you tried to help somebody who was in trouble? Just think, when was the last time? When was the last time? Did we? Did we do? Anything for God? They were stunned. They said, Lord, we don't remember doing any of these things for you. He said, you did for me when you did it for the least of my brethren. He says, look at these people. These were the ones you helped. When you did it to them, you were doing the works of God. Let me ask you this question. Through the four Gospels, you look at Jesus. If anybody came to him, did he ever say no? He could do it. He had all power. Okay. Now we don't have his power. But we have our own limited abilities. But what have we done? What have we done? You see, when the four Gospels are finished, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are finished, what is the next book called? What is it called? Is it called the speeches of the Apostles? The meditations of the Apostles? The gatherings of the Apostles? The incredible philosophical ideas of the Apostles? No, they are not. They are called the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles. In that book, they gathered, they prayed, they preached, they worshipped. But what is it called? The Acts of the Apostle. They call the Acts of the Apostle. You see, understand this very simple, for believers, understand this very simple thing. On earth, in this body, there is only one life. In this body, there is only one life. This body is not going to be saved. Let me ask you this question. If somebody gives you tomorrow morning, you wake up at 8 o'clock and you get a text. Thousand rupees deposited into your account at 8 a.m. By 8 a.m., if it is not spent, it will be debited out of your account. What will you do? What will you do? Will you spend it? Will you spend it? That's what God is saying. I've given everybody a body. This body will not be taken there. This body is deteriorating every day, showing the effects of sin. This body doesn't matter what you do. You go for seven day Ayurveda treatment, you go lie in the sauna, you do every surgery possible. Ultimately this body will deteriorate. You can delay, you cannot deny corruption. It will go. The question is, scripture says, Second Corinthians 4.16 must be, outwardly we are perishing. But inwardly we are being renewed. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. Inwardly, yes. As we hear the word and we believe the word and practice the word when it comes to self, inwardly we are being renewed. Outer body is perishing. But with this outer body, what are we doing? For God. 
the apostle at the end of his life this dear great man who wrote all these epistles in second timothy 4 and verse 6 he will say i am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand this is very little left the day he met jesus on the road to damascus the pouring began of his life now in a little while he will be executed he says i am being poured out my entire life is being poured out one thing he had to offer jesus was this life and this life contained in this body and he offered both to god he said my life my body belongs to you and you know the fact if you read scripture god used him to the uttermost because he surrendered his body to the uttermost that's where his confidence comes in words 4 and 7 and 8 uh no i have fought the good fight i have finished the race i have kept the faith finally there is where does his confidence come from does his confidence come from the fact yes lord i understood i did i i never sinned does his confidence come from that no that's only one side of confidence the other side of confidence is that you know what i did everything i could do for your name sake i have done it all i done it all one body one body yes we saw in second peter 3:14 we need to do certain things which gives us confidence that is what we do three and verse 14 therefore beloved looking forward to these things be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot blameless that is what we do for ourselves when he comes but that alone is not going to give people confidence there is the second part together with this gives you incredible confidence in second corinthians chapter 11 Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. He's talking about a lot of people during his time who questioned his apostleship. Who do you think this fellow is? Going around preaching like this. How did he justify his apostleship? How did he justify his ministership? It is not by what he preached. It is first by what he did he said you check my labor he said you check my labor look at my works what i have done in labor more abundant along with the labor the next thing he puts across is that because i was serving christ i went through incredible persecution because you can have incredible labor in your company and be the best employee and never have any stripes in your life if you're not serving Christ there simple reason you can labor as the best employee get the best employee award and never go through any harassment because companies love hard working good honest laborers but never have stood up for Christ did the work of god over there therefore labor more abundance in stripes above measure he said above measure above measure let me ask you this question was joseph the best worker for the first 13 years in egypt yes best hard working labor but did he go through stripes which no other slave went through 
Did he go through stripes because of sin or because of Christ? Because of Christ. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That means the sea. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In the perils of Gentiles. In peril in the city. Peril in the wilderness. Peril in the sea. Perils in false brethren. In weariness and toil. In sleepless often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Do you see his confidence coming from? What is he actually talking about? He's actually talking about what he went through for God as he worked for God. He was saying, you know what? I was a servant. I was not a hireling. I was not a hireling. I was a servant. I was not a hireling. There are two sides to salvation as God showed Israel. In Exodus 5 and verse 1, God told Moses, Go tell the Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. Yes, we step out of the world, leave the fun of the world, the temptations of the world, the lusts of the world. We move into the wilderness with the living God and we have a feast. If you enjoy God, every day is a feast. We have a feast. But that's not the only thing he told them to tell Pharaoh. He also told them to tell Pharaoh in 8.1 and spoke to Moses, Pharaoh, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they might serve me. Both have to be there. Yes, there is a feast. Yet, there is a serving. If we just feast alone, and we don't serve God, God says, you have nothing to be confident about. Confident about. Did God provide a feast for Israel for 40 years in the desert? Yes, he did. But were they happy? Were they happy? Why were they not happy? Though they had a feast. Think about it. Normally most people think like this. Lord, if I had a job and a secure job. Secure job means roti, kapda, makan. Makan, makan's main issue is security. From elements and from enemies, if I have these three, I will be happy. This is one set of people alone in human history ever. Two million people had that for 40 years without having to do one thing. They had food every day, they water every day, and absolute security from their enemies or the elements for 40 years, and nobody was happy. Why? Because Jesus said, you will be only happy if you serve me. Otherwise you won't be happy. You won't be. If you are a child of God, you can have every blessing of God. But if you don't serve him, you will never be happy. You'll never be happy. So the question we ask is this. 
Did we serve him today? Did we serve him? Did we serve him this week? Did we serve him this month? Because then you also have to look at what he said in John 13 verse 17, right? We have looked at it earlier. If you know these things, happy are if you do them. Meaning, the more you work for God, the more happy you will be. Whatever you do. It is consistent in the Bible. Consistent in the Bible. God doesn't save people and leave them hanging in the limbo. He says no. There are two sides. When Gideon encountered God and God took his sacrifice, God told him one thing first in Judges 6, 25 and 26. Now it came to pass the same night the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull, seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Build an altar to your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. Take the second bull, offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Okay. That's what we all did or continuing to do. What did we do? All the altars we had made in the world, in our old life, we cut it down. Then we have come into the kingdom of God. We built another altar to worship God. But is that all? Is that all? In verse 36, Gideon will say, Gideon said to the Lord, if you will save Israel by my hand, this is what I have to do, but there is a work to do. Have you ever asked that, Lord, will you save my generation by my hand? My generation by my hand. There is a work you want me to do. Whatever it is. I'm not talking about preaching here. I'm not talking about it. Body, many parts. Different parts do different things. But every part has to do something. Every part has to do something. If you don't do that part, when we stand before God, we'll say, Lord, I did not do this, I did not do this, I didn't. God says, good. Now we tell me, what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? Before the fall, did Adam have to do something? Yes, he had to do that. There was something he had to do and something he should not do. One thing God said, don't eat. That's all. And then he said, take care of this place. He had to do something. He had to do something. He could eat whatever you want. That is our worship. You can have a feast. Don't eat this. It is good for you. One and two is good for you. Take care of my creation. That is good for me. It's good for me. I created this. I'm handing it over to you. Take care of my creation. Don't eat. It's good for you. Eat everything else. Good for you. Take care of this creation. That's how you serve me. All three. God is asking us, what have we done? Honestly, what have we done? I don't know. I, you may be doing a lot in your companies, witnessing, testifying, helping the poor. What you may be, I do not know. I mean, it's my job is not to search and find out. That's not my job. My job is to exhort. What have you done? What have you really done for the kingdom today, this week, last week? This month or nine months. 
What have we done for the king and the kingdom? If Jesus were to come now, what can we say, Lord? Lord. Remember, everyone whom he appreciated had something to show. The first servant who multiplied did not come and say, you know, Lord, I brush my teeth in the morning and I, you know, Lord, I woke up in the morning, I read my Bible, I did my devotions in the morning. But that's not what they did. They brought something. Something. That pleased the master. Pleased the master. What have we done? Everybody, everybody, you look through the Bible, everybody who are commended for faith did something did something. And when they did that thing, it cost them. And cost. When I was teaching the pastors on Saturday, I told them, everything is built. If you look into God and how he operates, everything at the core of it is sacrifice. Where there is no sacrifice, you have done nothing. You have done nothing. Let me say, you are sitting at home doing nothing. You have nothing to do. And I tell you, you have nothing to do, right? I will send my car, pick you. Please come to church and sit down. What did you do? Nothing. Why did you come? Because you have nothing to do. Why did you come? Because somebody picked you up. Why did you come? Because you are bored. On the other hand, everything before and after the fall is based on the principle of sacrifice. You can eat everything you want except this. You have to sacrifice one thing in this relationship. You want to have a relationship with me, Adam, you will have to sacrifice one thing. And you look at it, it's good. It looks good. It sounds tempting. The devil, the first advertising executive in the world, he's the first advertising. He says, if you eat it, it's good for you. Looks good to the eyes. Definitely it was not something like a jackfruit and all. You know? Because Chris very clearly says it looks good to the eyes. That's why no advertiser ever tries to sell you something that is bad for the eyes. Even the most terrible, boring, dragging book cover is good. Cover is good. Right? Even the worst cooked food, if you are ordering at a restaurant, the top, the dressing is good. The worst restaurant where the kitchen is filthy, the ambience in the restaurant is nice. Why? Otherwise they can't sell it. But there is a sacrifice involved. If you want to have a relationship with me, there are one thing you need to sacrifice. Relationships, everything with God is based on sacrifice. Where there is no sacrifice, there is no relationship. There is no relationship. Everything is based on sacrifice. Every relationship, any relationship is based on sacrifice. If you are not close to your spouse, simple reason, there is no sacrifice. If you are not close to your parents, simple reason, there is no sacrifice. Your parent may flip feel close to you, you may not feel close to the parent. Or you may feel close to your parent, the parent may not feel close to you. Depends upon where there is sacrifice. Right? What if John 3.16 was written differently? For God so loved the world and he preached. You'd be still hearing. God so loved the world, he sang a song. 
He can sing, right? What does it say? For God so loved the world. He says, a relationship is based on sacrifice. And the greater the relationship, more the sacrifice. And the greatest relationship will have the greatest sacrifice. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He says, the principle of Godhead is based on sacrifice. Everything is based on sacrifice. So the first man mentioned in the Bible, in the book of faith, is Abel. And what does scripture says? He offered a more excellent sacrifice. It does not say there was no sacrifice in Cain's offering. There is sacrifice. After the earth has been cursed and you need to produce something, there is sacrifice. He has toiled. He has toiled. And he has brought. And he has offered. Which is easier, to look after flocks or to till the ground and watch over the harvest? Looking after flocks is better, but there is something else. Abel has reared the sheep. Scripture is absolutely quiet about what happened. It doesn't tell us anything. Only thing we know is that earlier in the garden there was a sacrifice. After that scripture is silent. God killed two animals, wrapped Adam and Eve and sent them out. Did Adam do it outside? We don't know. I presume he did not. Because scripture says by faith. Meaning by faith, meaning he has heard from his father that God did something like this. So who told him? Either God told him or his father told him. So by faith he offered a more excellent sacrifice. If that is true, interpretation, my interpretation is true, then outside the garden, until Abel brought his sacrifice, there is no death. This is your lamb. How did you kill him? You didn't have a knife. Probably never had a knife. What did you do? Did you take a stone and crush its head? Because you just wanted to please God, knowing that you cannot please God without a sacrifice. Isn't that what we say every time in every wedding? In better or worse? In riches or poverty? Health or sickness? What does it mean? It's meaning forsaking all others. He suddenly realized, you know what, if I need to have a genuine relationship with God, I need to, I need to forsake this one. I need to forsake this one. More excellent sacrifice. We are not getting in the other side of it. It is not alone. Sacrifice alone is not enough. But it also has to be done what the way God is pleased, not what I am pleased. Because scripture says, without faith it is impossible to please. We all love God. That is not the point. We love him because he first loved us. Otherwise nobody will love him. The question is, do we please him? We all love our children. Parents, yes. Do our children please us? Often no, or most of the time no. The scripture is very clear, without faith it is impossible to please God. But pastor, you don't know, I feel tears coming when I'm worshipping. That's because you love him. That doesn't mean you pleased him. Pleasing is only by faith, and faith always has a work. And the work has to be according to God. There is sacrifice and there is obedience. You can have sacrifice without obedience and you can have sacrifice and obedience. There was sacrifice in Cain, but no obedience. There was sacrifice in Abel, there was obedience. When David brought the ark to, the, to Jerusalem, the first time there was incredible sacrifice, but there was no obedience. 
God was not pleased. Though there was sacrifice. Second time he brought three months later, there was sacrifice and obedience. Like the example I gave the pastors, you know, you love me, you keep calling me to come to your village, this thing and all that, and you call me. You call me and you spread a feast for me. Chicken biryani, mutton biryani, beef biryani, egg biryani, everything. And you really worked. Your wife woke up early in the morning, cooked everything and it is set before me. But one problem, you never asked me and you didn't know I don't like biryani. Was that sacrifice? Yes. But did they please me? No. I am pleased by their sacrifice, but I am not pleased by their offering. Both Cain and Abel, there was sacrifice. But Abel's was a more excellent sacrifice because God was pleased with his offering. At the core is that of everything. That's why it begins with Abel. With Abel. The next person mentioned is Enoch. Right? Worship to walk. Can you walk with God? Can you walk with your wife? Can you walk with any friend without sacrificing that time with somebody else? Is it possible to walk without sacrifice? No, you cannot. You walk with anyone, somebody else you have to sacrifice. Maybe you yourself, maybe you are a person who likes to sit alone for 20 hours and watch a movie or read. But if you have to go with somebody else, you have to sacrifice this to go with that person. So scripture says, Enoch walked with God. By the time he finished his walk, it was an incredible walk of sacrifice. He had to first sacrifice all his friends, his household, his children, his wife. Finally, he's walking alone with God because everybody said, we cannot walk with you. Everybody started setting terms. You want to walk with us? This is the pace with which you walk. This is the compromises you have to make. And he said, no, I need to walk with him. So every step of Enoch with God cost him in another relationship. The core of everything is sacrifice. Where there is no sacrifice and where there is no obedience, God says, I'm not pleased. It doesn't please me. By faith. He was translated, scripture says. He was translated. The question is, we are waiting for Jesus to come so that we can be translated. Question is, will we be translated? How can we be translated unless we please him? Scripture says he pleased God. Then only the third one comes. And the third one, scripture says, is the first one who is asked to do a work. To do a work. And that work called for immense sacrifice from Noah. Whatever he was before that, he had to leave it. And he had to start doing God's work. Or if he was doing something, he was a farmer probably. And if he was a farmer, even as he farmed, he had to continue doing God's work too. What he did in the secular realm, I believe he was a farmer because when he came out of the garden, out of the ark, he went back to farming and planted a vineyard. So I believe he was a farmer. But during that time he built the ark, his farming is not mentioned at all because that is irrelevant. He is doing a work of God. During the time you are in your office doing, working for any company, if you are doing a work there for God, when you stand before God, only that is mentioned. I will say, Lord, 2014 to 2015 I was with IBM. But in God's record something is said. She witnessed to this one, she spoke to this one, she went to prison, she went to the juvenile home, she went to the orphanage. Lord, 
But I was with IBM. He said, yeah, so was Noah a farmer. But the other work is the only thing that is recorded. Because you were working for me there. You were serving me there. Did we? 120 years of service is mentioned. He's called a preacher of righteousness. That's not alone that he did. He's also called the builder. He's building something according to God's specifications. If you asked Noah, what work did you do for God? He will say, I built an ark. I built something for God. Because God told me to build it. I built it for him and I built it according to his specifications for his namesake. The door was open. I did not shut the door. That's not my job. My job. I left it open. I built it. Anybody could have come. Therefore, while I was building, I also witnessed. Judgment is coming. Judgment is, judgment is coming. Get in. Judgment is coming. Get in. That's what God is asking everyone. In your offices. How do you live? The way you live in your offices. Does anybody know there's something strange with this girl? Strange with this man. Why are you living like this? When we are living like this, then you'll tell them, you know what? Judgment is coming. I am living in the light of judgment. Really? Judgment is coming. What should I do? Come to church. You will hear the second part of the story. Come to church. You know, some of you believe, you know what? We don't invite our friends to GTC. You know what? GTC, it's very difficult for them to understand. That's why now we have people sitting in the church who heard it on the internet and came without you telling. How many have come in the last two months just hearing it on the internet, searched and came to the church? Because you have decided this message is too difficult. Every prophet, every servant of God in every generation, when they preach God's word, it was difficult. It was not easy. Because it's about judgment, get in. But you already decided, no, I will I will share, I will have my Bible study, but I won't invite them. Because our church is too difficult for them. No, it's not too difficult. It's not. What did we do? What have you done in these nine months? Did we witness? I know godly pe- people like my grandfather and all. Faithful to the church all his life. I know from personal experience, all the years I knew him, he never witnessed to a single soul in his life. That is the truth of most Christians. I've never witnessed, never shared the gospel. If the only ones who have a miraculous salvation from other faiths or another thing, they are the ones who witness. The ones who have grown in Christian families never witness. They never witness. They find it very difficult to witness. Yes, scripture says the light is going out. There is little time left to work. A time is coming when you cannot witness anymore. Laws are being rewritten. Everything is being rewritten. In all the years of AP and Telangana from we have known in 25 years, last year was the first year nobody was allowed to go to the prisons for Christmas. Nobody. No Christian organization was not allowed. It's tightening. Everywhere it is tightening. I believe a day will come, I won't even allow you to feed the beggars. Let them die, but let them die without you telling them about Christ. Light, darkness is coming. And God is saying, your companies will start making rules. Those rules doesn't offend the Muslim, it doesn't offend the Hindu, because they don't come to the company and share anything. Tomorrow is immersion. Did any of your friends call you to come for immersion? They may give you a laddu. You say yes or no. That's all. But you and I have been given a message. 
It's not a small message. It's a message that will decide their destiny. Eternity. Eternity. See, that's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He saw all these people moved by physical ailment. My daughter is ill. My son is ill. My servant is ill. And he, okay, 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 okay. We get moved by physical ailments. But he wept because they are not able to see their spiritual ailment. If your friend sitting next next to you has got a terrible illness and you know the solution for that, will you keep your mouth shut? Will you? Let us say diagnosed with a certain kind of a disease and you by strange means knows a doctor who has handled and healed many patients. Will you keep quiet? No. You will say, you know what, you know what, you will get all the details and says, you know what. But we don't realize they are all going through the greatest spiritual sickness ever. And we have the solution, we keep quiet. We keep quiet, we don't share. We don't say anything, we don't do anything. Don't do anything. And that's what has happened. That's why Christianity has lost its influence. The light has become darkness. We are not serving God anymore. We are serving ourselves. And God says, through the parables, what he keeps saying is, what did you do for me? You know, I was asked, Noah, what did you do for me? Noah would say, Lord, I built this for you. If you ask Abraham, Abraham, what did you do for me? Abraham will say, Lord, I walked this land, as you said, for hundred years, Lord. Did it cost you? He said, yes, Lord. What did it cost me? Everything. Do you have anything to show on earth? No, Lord, not even a foot of land. Even to bury my wife, I had to beg somebody to sell that land. Did it cost you? Yes, Lord. Noah, did it cost you? Yes, Lord. Enoch, did it cost you? Yes, Lord. Abel, did it cost you? Yes, Lord. You look through the Bible. Is there anybody who served God which did not cost them? Therefore, the question is, did we serve him? Did it cost us? Cost us? Did it cost us anything? I said, cost us? Really cost us serving God? I am not com- talking about coming to church to hear the word. It may cost you Uber fare or Ola fare. I am not talking about that. It still benefits you. It's not benefiting God if you haven't taken what you've received and given it to others. Then it benefits Him. Otherwise it's only benefited you. Because the kingdom of God benefits people. It really benefits. But the kingdom of God is a matter of principle. It's a matter of power. People understood it. The centurion one look at Jesus understood it. He said, Lord, you don't have to come. I understand your kingdom. You don't have to come. I'm a man under authority. I understand. If I say someone go, he goes. If I say come, come. You don't have to come. You just speak the word. He said, wow, you understood the kingdom. People come in churches, listen, they understand, they go practice and they prosper in their life. But they haven't done anything for God. The kingdom of God rules over all the affairs of men. It has power. The principles work. It will work to change a person's life, a family's life, a nation. It can change. But that doesn't mean you served God. That's what That's what uh, David realized. The ark of God, he was sacrificed, he was excited, somebody died, he's angry. Cain was also angry, he's also angry. But he was afraid, Cain was not afraid. He was afraid. Then the ark went into somebody's house, it stayed there for three days, three months, and David heard, you know what, 
everything and everybody in that house is blessed. So he said, okay, let me bring it to Jerusalem. Just true. If you understand God, understand how his kingdom works, it will bless you. But the problem is, have I been a blessing to God? Have you and I been a blessing to God? That's what he's telling the children of Israel in the book of Haggai. He says, you all built your paneled houses. Look at it. Wonderful. Awesome. Awesome houses. I like it. Your houses are good. But what about me? What about me? What did you do for me? What have you done for him? What have we done? And the question is, when we do, like Paul has written, will we do it without sacrifice? The saddest thing I face as a pastor is when I meet other people in ministry, when they say, you can't call anybody to do anything unless you pay them in ministry. They won't come. So when one man comes or another man comes and says, I just want to do it for the Lord, I say, hallelujah, finally found one. Otherwise they won't come. I'm not talking about people in the secular. I'm talking about people in ministry will not come do one thing unless they are paid. That's a sad thing. They won't come. No pastor will go and preach unless he's offered an offering. Nobody who knows how to sing and he wants to call himself on YouTube a professional worship leader, will go lead worship unless he's paid. Nobody. Nobody. There's no sacrifice. Absolutely no sacrifice. Look at it. And so many preachers who go around preaching, they are not preaching because they love preaching or love the God. They know. If, if, I will tell you honestly. Every request, almost every request, I say no. But if I take requests and allow Vijay to preach, I can preach 30 days a month, they will give me at least 1500 each message offering. That's 45,000 a month. Preaching is a good job. If you are a good preacher, you can make money. And you can preach according to your audience. If they are conservative, give them a conservative message. If they are liberal, give them a liberal message. If they are excited, give them a message that excites them. If you please them, they will put good offerings and call you back again and again. That's why it said about Spurgeon. He was invited in the 1800s to US to come to speak 50 meetings, $50,000. $1,000 a meeting. $50,000 in the 18th century. He said, no. I got something else to do here. I got my church. Ministry or secular world, wherever God's children are there, the question we ask is this. What would we do? Well, only our testimony is about the things which did not do for God. God said, that's excellent. That is excellent. I did not drink. I did not smoke. I never used foul languages. I was in office on time. I did my work. I was honest. I had integrity. Look at my certificate of commendation from all my employees. All that is good. God says, fine. Now tell me, what did you do for me? What did you do for me? What's our answer? 
What did you do for me? Everybody can do something for God. Everybody. As a close. Years ago, I think, let me think. 12, 2004, 2003, 13 years ago. I was in Nepal, in the border to India from, from east, eastern side border. Where there were four UN camps. I've shared this testimony some time back. Few times. If you remember, you will remember. This was the UN camps which were established for the Nepalese who were thrown out of Bhutan. There were thousands, over one and a half lakh Bhutanese refugees living there from 1989. 89 to 2002 when I went, it is like 15 years. A generation had grown up in these camps. You go to these camps, they have these little, little huts built. UN built area. Small huts. Families all living over there. They are given some five kilos or something of rice as rations. Few vegetables, salt, this thing. They are not allowed to work in Nepal. They are not allowed to enter into India and work. They are not allowed to go back to Bhutan. Unless there is a resolution and the resolution never happened. So they are growing there just as refugees eating this. Till class 10, even run schools are there. After that, they cannot study also. Because they cannot go to Nepal study. They cannot because then you become a citizen. So nobody allows it. This one and a half lakh people are staying in this camp like this. These were all Hindus once. But when trouble comes, they start seeking the real God. Okay, so when they ended up in the camp, many, 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 many became Christians. Now, it was like growing among them. So I was there to deal with the pastors and the elders, then to take a pastor's conference for them for three days. What happened was that, as I was preaching, and I was preaching that time also from Exodus on what is in your hand that you can give God so that God can use you to serve Him. They sent me a note written in Nepali fam, right? It was written saying that, Pastor, we heard you, but we have an issue. We have nothing to give God. We have no money. We have no job. We are not allowed to have money or job. There's nothing we can do. We are not allowed to leave this area. We can do nothing. And it's very strange, you know, you're caught in a situation like this right after the message. And uh, what do you answer them? They want an answer. They're looking for an answer because the servant of God has come into the midst and training them and they want to know, Lord, you are telling that God, everybody has something. Everybody has something. And you are telling us, you also have something, but we have nothing. I asked God, Lord, I need an answer, I need an answer. These are your people. Give me an answer, give me an answer. He gave me an answer. I told them, dear brethren, wherever I go, wherever any pastor, servant of God goes, everybody will tell you, please, make your message short. Why? Because we have no time. Anywhere. Anywhere in the world you go, all of them say, you know, we have no you are one set of people who have all the time in the world and nothing to do. You are the only set of people in the whole world who have all the time in the world and by circumstance allowed to do nothing. God is telling you, will you give that time into his hands 
and start praying and interceding for the nations. First, the nation that threw you out. Second, the nation that allowed you passage. Third, the nation that gave you refuge. Start there. Will you? They said, yes, we will. You know what? You go back to the camp. There's hardly anybody left. Everybody has been taken by Sweden, Australia, England, America, Iran. And they have gone and established churches everywhere. Don't tell me you can't do anything for God. You can. You can. You can. You can. I go on the net and see their worship. And I say, okay, I know that one. I know that one. I saw them two years ago in Carolina, in this country, state in U.S. I see their churches and just look at their worship and say, good for you. You are there. You are there. You know, please never ever think you cannot do anything for God. You can. You can. The question is, first, Start that time you have in your hands. Get on your knees and say, Lord, I offer my time into your hands. Let me do something. Tell me, what do you want me to do? That's what Saul of Tarsus said. First thing, struck blind. Who are you? Jesus of Nazareth. Second thing, what do you want me to do? Lord, I accept your lordship. If I am a servant and you are my Lord, then I have to serve you. I can only serve you. I won't take the name Lord in vain. I am your Lord. I am your Lord. And as we close, look at Romans 1.1, 1, 1, the first epistle in the new covenant and we shall pray. Paul, eh? Paul, eh? Called to be an apostle. He doesn't introduce himself as an apostle. What did he say? Call, Paul, eh? When did that happen? On the road to Damascus. Lord, what do you want me to do? Your bond servant. If you are Lord, I am your servant for life. Tell me what to do. I will do it. He never looked back from there. At the end of his life, he's saying, Lord, you know, my entire life has been an offering to you. Time for my departure has come. And I have the confidence I have my crown. Because I know how I served you. Served you not only with the things which I did not do, but I have confidence by the things which I have done for you. I had sacrifice, I had obedience, and I kept away from the world. Amen? That's the one that brings boldness. Shall we pray? Father, this evening, we just thank you, Lord. We just thank you, we just thank you, we just thank you, Lord. I pray, Father, we would be just, not just be cleansing ourselves as Paul exhorted Timothy, but we would be noble vessels in your hands for the Master's purpose, for the Master's use, O God, every one of us. More cleansing as we hear the word. More the washing of the water by the word. Father, not to sit idle, but to be a vessel, a noble vessel in the master's hand, O Lord. To do more and more and more and more and more for the Lord, Master. Until our entire life is poured out, O Master. For this body is perishing. It will not get stronger. But we want to give every ounce of our strength back to you. Back to you. So that you want to use this body before it is destroyed in surrender, in service to you, Lord. Because this body once served the devil and the world. But this body we once again offer as a living sacrifice unto you. That it might serve God who saved us, the God who redeemed us by giving us his own son as a sacrifice. I pray in our relationship there would be sacrifice. In our walk, there would be sacrifice in our work.
there would be sacrifice so that we please God by our faith. Thank you, Father. As your children go back, I pray you will take each one home safely, Lord. Give us rest that we may rise up again to serve you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.